Well, hey, St. Joe campus, and I want to welcome our Stevensville campus as well this weekend. Uh, we get started with a new series, uh, and so we're glad to have you with us. Uh, we're talking about hang-ups. I think probably all of us have dealt with some hang-ups uh, to our faith. Hang-ups are things that get in the way of us really having a dynamic uh, relationship with Christ, uh, really getting to know uh, God. Over the course of the next uh, few weeks, uh, we start this week, we're going to talk about, is the Bible trustworthy? A great subject. A lot of times we can have a hang-up on God's Word. Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? Next week, we'll talk about um, uh, suffering, you know, all the suffering in the world. Is there, can there really be a God? If, and if there is a God, why does He allow this kind of suffering? That could be a hang-up for us. In week three, we'll talk about uh, hypocrites. One of the common hang-ups that people have with Christianity is, well, what about those hypocrites? I'm, you're no better than me, and you guys need to get your act together. Why would I want to be one of you? That kind of thing. Uh, and so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about hypocrites, and then we'll, uh, the final installment, week four, uh, we'll talk about uh, kind of the idea of, uh, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I, do I really need Jesus? What difference does Christ make uh, in someone's life, and do I really uh, need Christ? Uh, we've got at all the campuses, so over at Seasonville here uh, this weekend, uh, we've got little invite cards that uh, I think they're at the, near the doors, and I encourage you to take one if you know somebody that, I think you got some last weekend, but uh, if you, you, you want, you got somebody that you'd like to invite, on last week's invite card, it actually, the two weeks were reversed, so we, uh, we're going to have suffering next week and then hypocrites in week three, so we kind of switch those. So if you've got a specific person that really needs a specific kind of week, just make sure you get the weeks right. So anyway, you could use one of those invite cards that I'm sure are at the door. Well, let's kind of jump in this week. Um, I remember, again, this, this idea, is the Bible uh, trustworthy? I remember when I was a kid. I can't really remember what, uh, what grade I was in. I don't know, maybe second, third, fourth grade maybe, but I remember I was in elementary school. And I was struggling with this idea of dinosaurs. I like, okay, if there's a God and, and uh, you know, what, how did dinosaurs play in all this and creation and just all this stuff. And, I'm, uh, you know, I felt like I, I couldn't figure that out. And so I remember that it was, I was really struggling as a young kid and, and so... In, uh, I was up in my bedroom, I remember this uh, one night, and I was, it was so kind of messing with me that I was laying there crying, just thinking, you know, God, is there a God? And, 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 and I was kind of struggling with that, and my mom came into my bedroom, and she asked me, you know, what's wrong? And of course, being the compassionate mother, and so I tell her, you know, I, I, you know dinosaurs, and how does that understand, and, and how does that all work? And, and my mom did not have an answer. <laughs> and I was, she was no help. <laughs> and, uh, and I just remember that there was a period of time that I really struggled with that. And so uh, we're not going to get into that this weekend. If you want that answer, uh, come talk to me personally, send me an email, and we'll talk about that, which we can. But, uh, but I, I but, and so that's all, I got that all squared away, got understand how that all works. But um, but she did not have an answer for me, and it was a hang-up absolutely in my faith. There's different hang-ups, as we talked about, and we, over the next few weeks, we'll talk about some of these hang-ups, but there are things that get in the way of us really being able to put our faith and our trust in God. So, let's talk about this first hang-up, is the Bible trustworthy? 
It's probably a hang-up that uh, maybe if you've not had it personally, I'm sure that you've had people in your life, maybe you know of somebody that, that has that hang-up, you might be here this weekend and this is a hang-up, and so either if this is a hang-up that you personally have, and, or maybe it's not a, a total hang-up, but it's something you've got some questions about, or uh, maybe it also will help you to help someone else. So I encourage each of us to pay attention, whether it's something you're struggling with, or there will be people in your life, if you're paying attention, that you can help that are struggling with this particular hang-up. We probably all heard someone say something similar to this. Well, I'm glad that faith works for you. As for me, uh, you know, I really can't believe the Bible. And how can you believe the Bible? I mean, after all, it was written thousands of years ago. There's all kinds of errors in it. It's been translated and retranslated and copied and recopied. I mean, how can you even know that what you have is actually the original kind of Bible kind of idea? People, for people, it's a hang-up. As you think about this issue, that that issue of is the Bible trustworthy, it's not even just an issue with those outside of the faith. In fact, there's a lot of people within uh, the, 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 the circle of, of faith that are even within the church, and you might be here this weekend, and you struggle with, is the Bible trustworthy? And you would say, well, I've got some real issues with different parts, and, and you struggle with it. And there are, even, there are even people that would be looked at as leaders of other groups, others other denominations, that would say, you know what, I've got some real problems with the Bible. When I was in... Uh, in Middletown, Ohio, there was a young girl that had come to faith in Christ as a teenager, and her parents did not go come to church, and so she had this radical, wonderful uh, connection with Christ, and was really growing in her faith, and decided that she wanted to go to a Christian college. And so she goes off to school, goes to a Christian college, and uh, I forget what semester it was, but anyway, in her freshman year, she writes back by email the youth pastor and myself this scathing email. And she says, basically, this had this idea, I can't believe how you lied to me, how you acted like and taught me that these, these things, these stories, these myths, these fables in, in the Bible, you, you acted like they were actually true when you knew better. She'd been taught that a lot of what is in God's word is myth and fable, and we can't really know for sure what's true and what's not. And this was at a supposed Christian college where she got this idea. And as a result of the crumbling of the foundation of the Bible, it was destroying her faith. So when she came back home, we sat down with her, and we talked to her, and we helped her work through that, and we uh, you know, hey, we weren't lying to you. Here's what we believe and here's why. And we sat down and we tried to help her in that. And let me just make a statement that you need to hear, the Stevesville campus needs to hear, Ben Heights campus needs to hear. Pastor Kevin's preaching live over there this weekend, but, but uh, he's going you know, to share it there. You need to understand that as a church, as a congregation, as your lead pastor, we firmly believe here in what is the inerrancy of God's word. And that's just a fancy word. Inerrancy means that all that God affirms and communicates as true in Scripture, we believe is true and is trustworthy. 
Now, if you want an in-depth conversation, in-depth study on that subject, there's a, there's, um, it, was a, it was a wonderful statement that was put, off, put out in the, in the late 1970s. A bunch of evangelical scholars got together in Chicago. It's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And you can actually look that up on the web. And I'll put on Facebook and on our website, I'll put some links so you can kind of check it out if you want to. But it's a wonderful statement that just affirms this idea that God's word is true. And that God's word is trustworthy. So as we think about this subject, is God's word, is the Bible trustworthy? Let's look and see what does the Bible say about itself. And we'll kind of start there this weekend. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14 says this. And it's Paul writing to his young pastor friend Timothy. And he affirms this about God's word. Listen to what he says. He says, but as for you, he's talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned And have become convinced of. Because you know that those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here is Paul, and he's affirming to his young friend in the faith, his young brother in the faith, he's urging him to continue on in this faith. Continue in this faith that you've learned and you've put your faith in. Continue in your faith, that this faith that you've been taught from those you trust, basically. In, these, in verse 14, he talks about the, the credible witnesses that you've heard it from. Keep trusting in them. Keep trusting in this, in this faith that you have. And notice how he describes God's word, how he describes the Bible. He describes it as the holy scriptures. That word holy is a word that just means these scriptures that are set apart, that they're special, that they're, they're unique, that they, that they mean something. They're set apart for, for God's use. He, he, he calls the Bible, these are holy scriptures. What's he say that they have the power to do? He says these holy scriptures have the power. They can make you wise. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe, he gives a description of, 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 of of, of the Bible. He says all scripture... So he's talking about the Old Testament, he's talking about what has been revealed through the Holy Spirit as the, the New Testament writers were writing it as well. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. This is the first place in all of ancient scripture that you have this phrase, God-breathed. It's like Paul, it was so important, so vital, what he's trying to communicate that he coins this new, fresh phrase that had not been seen anywhere else in ancient literature. It is God-breathed, he said. It is the very breath of God. It's the pneuma of God. It is the word of God. It's the inspiration of God. And what's he say it's useful for? He said it's useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. It is the revelation of God, Old Testament, New Testament. We, we see that this is what Paul says about, uh, about Scripture, and so it's what Scripture is saying about Scripture. We see Jesus has the same theme. When he, when he affirms uh, uh, God's Word, and he holds it in high regard, and he refers to it as coming from God, the apostles affirm it, Jesus affirms it. This idea, this tradition of, of, of this high view of Scripture is something that the early church, they affirmed as well. 
the New Testament church believed that these words that they had been given, that had been translated and transmitted and that they had were special, holy, unique, God-breathed, the, the words of God, totally trustworthy, is the way that they looked at it, the early church. And we continue and we affirm that idea about God's word, that the Bible is completely trustworthy. But as we think about that, is that just something that's a matter of faith? Is that just something that, you know, I've got to, if I'm going to believe the Bible, then I've got to kind of disengage my brain. I've got to, I've got to, to take, uh, you know, my, my, the thinking part of me and I've got to kind of put that aside. And it's just by faith alone that I believe and have faith that the Bible is trustworthy. Or is there any kind of proof, any kind of rational proof that might help me have a foundation to believe this idea that God's word is trustworthy? Well, I am so delighted that you asked. Because that's what we want to talk about this weekend. So it's not just this matter of faith. We want to talk about, about that there's a foundation that we can build that helps to prove that, yes, God's word is trustworthy. And the first proof that we want to, th- proof that we want to throw out this weekend is the proof that we'll call from ancient documents. Now, the Bible, as we have it, has been passed from generation to generation. It's been passed from, from uh, Christ follower to Christ follower down through the generations in, in such a way that we can trust what we have, so this Bible, if you got it on your phone, you got it on your, you're in a book in front of you, that we can trust that, that these are the words that were originally given through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and then uh, through the different uh, copies and whatnot. What we have today is what God intended us to have. The Bible's not the only ancient manuscript. Of course, there are many others. And they, just like the Bible, were passed from generation to generation. They're copies of the original. So none of these ancient documents, do you have the actual, you know, you don't have what, what Aristotle actually wrote down. You've got what was translated and transmitted over, over generations. And so what it's called is, again, this proof of the ancient documents is called the bibliographical test. Just a fancy word that basically means evidence from ancient documents. As we think about what we have, it's reasonable for us to say that we believe that the Bible is trustworthy. Again, since we don't have any of the originals, and we don't have any of the original documents from, uh, you know, from any of the ancient writings, as we think about this, this, this proof from the ancient documents, we have to kind of ask some questions. How reliable are the copies that we have? How trustworthy are the copies of the original that we have? And then another question we would ask is, well, how, how many manuscripts of those of, that do we have of the originals? How many copies of the originals do we have that have survived? And then when you compare, if you laid out all these copies, and if you compared them, and if there weren't any variations between them, and they've all been written at different times or whatever, you can conclude that, that this is reliable because they're, they're the same, basically. And so how many manuscripts have survived? And then, and then are, the, are those manuscripts consistent, as I said? And then what's, this is important too, what's the gap between when the, whatever ancient document you have, when it was originally written down and the, the oldest manuscript there had? What's, have, what's the, the gap between those? And the shorter the gap, it's more reasonable to conclude that the more accurate it is if that gap is shorter. And so you've got 
Again, ancient manuscripts like ancient works like the works of Plato or the works of Caesar's, the Gallic Wars, or Homer's, the Iliad. I mean, many of you have heard of that, maybe even read parts of it, or maybe watched the movie um, uh, of the, the Iliad. And so there's a chart I wanted to just show you. Hopefully you'll be able to see it. But here's what we have. We have the author, whether Caesar, Plato, uh, uh, um, Tacitus, Homer uh, in the New Testament. And so you've got when it was written in this column. Uh, and so you've got the kind of a, a we know kind of, uh, kind of the generally the span of when these ancient documents are written. You have the earliest fragment then in this column of when it was written. And then here's the, the gap between when it was written first and then the, fir- the oldest copy that you have or fragment that you have. And then the number of manuscripts, again, you compare those manuscripts and how accurate are those manuscripts when you compare them to each other. And you'll notice, I mean, who would doubt that Caesar's The Gallic Wars, that that was actually what he said or what some of the writings of Plato, we just, you know, that's just the way it is. But notice that there's, it's a thousand years from when he actually first wrote that till the oldest copies that we have. But when you look at the New Testament, Notice, compared to any other ancient writing, and no one disputes Caesar or Plato or Tacitus or or Homer's the Iliad, no one disputes these as accurate. And you look at the New Testament, written depending on what book, like the Gospel of Mark or 1 Corinthians were some of the first ones written. You have 80, 40 to 80, 100, earliest, uh, uh, some of the fragments or copies that we have, are the first generation. Actually, we, I just, just read some things. This is not even up to date with some of the latest that even we have some uh, earlier copies of the, of the Gospel of Mark and, and 1, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. So it's written between 25 and 50 and some maybe even a little sooner than that. Uh, the span between it was when it was originally written down and the earliest copies that we have. And this is significant. Imagine when you, when you have, we have 1 Corinthians is talking about, in 1 Corinthians, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul affirms the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he talks about how, how it's fact. And he talks about how there are some 500 people that, that saw it and, 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 and Christ appeared after the resurrection when he rose from the dead. And, and, and this was written, we have the first copies written during the time frame that some of those people could still have been alive. And yet no one is out there saying, when you look at all the other ancient documents and all the other things going on, no one's saying, no, I, that's not right, what Paul is saying there in his letter to the Corinthian church. It's significant. The ancient proof that we have from these ancient documents. And then look at the number of manuscripts that we have. And again, they're finding more and more all the time, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Uh, 24,000 either fragments or entire books or collections of books of God's word. And so when we talk about the proof that we have of God's word and we say that it is that it's that it's trustworthy, we don't have to just disengage our mind and and just and just walk away from reason. We can have a reasonable certainty that God's word is accurate and true like he wanted us to have it. We don't have time to get on to the all, into all of the Old Testament except to say that like the New Testament, we can be equally, I believe, certain that what we have in our hands today is the faithful, reliable, 
transmission of what God intended us to have, which we have brought together as the Bible, as God's word. This proof, this proof from ancient documents, gives us a reasonable faith. Builds that reasonable faith. Now, the second proof is the proof, the archaeological proof. And this is where I get really jazzed up. So you're going to have to forgive me uh, if I get really excited. Because this, to me, is, it's, it, it just is breathtaking, some of what we have when it comes to archaeology. I, a, couple years ago, a couple years ago, I was able to go to Israel. And when you go to Israel and you're, you're walking where Jesus walked, you're, you're looking around and there's all, these, there's all these archaeological digs and there's these, these cities and these places and these rivers and these mountains and they, these, these things that Scripture talks about, cities like they talked about, mountains, rivers, all this stuff. And, and all of these things are, it's like they're singing this chorus of praise to God. Because you can look in his word and you can see these, what really, when it comes to you know, cities or rivers or mountains, those are not real significant necessarily things except they say that when you, when you can believe that, that, that what God's word says about this city or that river or this culture and the way they did things and then you find out later that's exactly what God's word, how it's described. It's something that strengthens our faith and helps us to just hear over and over and over this chorus that sings the verse, God's word is true and it's trustworthy and it can be relied on. If God's word can be relied on when it, we talk about cities and mountains and rivers and cultural kind of nuances and all that, it can be relied on in those areas. Why would we not believe that it can be relied on in the things that it was really intended to communicate, like faith and trust and God and, and God loves us and salvation and who Jesus is and the resurrection, all those things that make a difference for our eternity. If we can trust it in these areas, we can certainly trust it in areas of faith. There are people that love to try to disprove the Bible and try to find things that they would say, well, yeah, see, this points to the fact that, that uh, Scripture is unreliable. One of those examples, I've used it before, so you might remember this if you really pay attention years ago to something I said. Um, but John 5.2, the passage of Scripture, it's kind of this, not a lot of faith kind of issues caught up in this. It's just kind of some facts that, that John wrote about. And there are... Scott, these, some of these people that want to say that God's word is not true, they, they would, or that, that there's, we have problems with it and we don't know what we can believe and what we can't, uh, kind of the textual criticism kind of folks, and they would say, well, this is an example of something uh, that, uh, you know, John really, the apostle John, he, didn't, he wasn't really around when Jesus, it's not John, he wasn't really one of the apostles, this, this was written like hundreds of years later, and so he didn't know anything about Jerusalem, he didn't really know what was going on, and so there's errors in the text, and so it points to the fact that John was written much, much later, is kind of what they get at when they say that this stuff is unreliable. And what they say is, well, because this is just a little factoid, in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate of Pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And they would say, well... That's ridiculous. There is no pool like this outside of Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate. And even if there was, it's obviously an error because a pool can't have, if a pool is a square or is a rectangle, the types of pools they had back in the day in first century uh, Israel, and, and that's what they would have had. And so there's no way that it had five colonnades, five porches. It's an error, except in the 18th century. 
or 19th century. An archaeologist dug up and they found Bethsaida. They found this, this pool. And if we have a picture, this is a, an actual, um, this is kind of a, a, a scaled model of what Jerusalem looked like in the first century. And just outside the wall, this is the temple up here. And just outside the wall on the outside near the sheep gate, this is the north side of the temple, is the pool of Bethsaida. And notice this rectangle that has within it this middle part, which actually is a dam that separated a, uh, the north part from the south part. One was higher than the other, and there was a dam where they dammed water that came down toward the Kidron Valley. And right here you have the fifth porch or fifth colonnade. Every single time. When quote-unquote scholars have said, well, we don't know if we can trust God's word. Look at this example. And then over and over and over, archaeologists dig something up and say, well, actually, you were wrong. God's word was right. I had a chance, and here's a, we got a picture of, um, this is actually what it looks like today, the ruins. There were some Roman bathhouses they put in much later, and some of the ruins of that as well. This is my little book that uh, when I went to the Holy Land, went to Israel, I took pictures, and I actually have uh, the picture that I took, which is actually the, what I found on the Internet was much better. Um, but here's my picture of being there at the pool of Bethsaida. I've been there. I've seen it. God's word is true. God's word is trustworthy. You look at the record of the archaeologists, and it's, it's proof that God's word is true. Another, another example, and, you, and you, there's any number of examples of, of the cultural things that, that archaeologists prove about, about the patriarch Abraham or evidence of Jews living in Egypt or evidence of kings like David or Solomon. There's a, there's a passage of scripture in the Old Testament. It's just this obscure 2 Kings 9, 15, where it talks about that Solomon was building all this stuff when he was king. He was expanding all of this stuff and he was fortifying these cities. And there were these three cities that, that were these, these fortifications that he was, uh, that he was building. Building up, and they're, they're listed Megiddo, Herzog, and Gerza. And again, I was there. I was at Megiddo, and I was standing where, in this area where the, where the gates were. And, and Solomon had, and they, they know that these were the gates during the period where Solomon was king. And, and these gates had been expanded because the gate, if you're going to storm a city, it was the gate that you went to. It was a, a weak point. And so they had fortified these gates trying to strengthen his position as the, as the new king, King Solomon. And so they were unique, these gates were. They had three the, of these kind of uh, chambers on each side of the gate. And so uh, these, the, the archaeologists, uh, this famous Israeli archaeologist, when they were doing the archaeological dig in Megiddo, they were going then to uh, the other city of Hazor. And this archaeologist thought, well, you know, Scripture says that, the Old Testament says that he fortified these three cities. So they found what they thought was a corner of the gate of Sol- from Solomon's time. And so this archaeologist drew out a, an exact kind of a representation of the gate that they had found in Megiddo, and he and he. And he uh, said, you know, if this is the corner, then, then, and if it's exactly the same, then this would be the other corner, and this would be that chamber, and the other chamber over here. And, and so he laid it out on the ground, and he told the guys, now dig. And what do you think they found? Look it up if you don't trust me. But uh, what they found was, 
the exact blueprint was used at Megiddo and each of these three cities. Which is this this small little proof from archaeology that what God's word says is true. And if we can trust it again in these kind of issues, we can trust it today. Let me just give you some concluding words from Scoville in his book, Biblical Archaeology and Focus. He says this, It's important to realize that the archaeological excavations have produced ample, ample evidence to prove unequivocally that the Bible is not a pious forgery. Thus far, and listen to what he says, no historical statement in the Bible has proven false on the basis of evidence retrieved through archaeological research. Period. End of quote. God's word is trustworthy. There's a foundation upon which we can build our faith. And then finally, real quick, is the proof, and this is kind of fun too, is the proof from prophecy. A prophecy basically is a statement that was, that's made in the past about, or the present, but talking about the future. Here's what's going to happen, in other words, in the future. And so, of course, God's word is filled with prophecy. There's all kinds of thus saith the Lord moments that, that are, were yet to be fulfilled when they were written down. Some of the most famous ones, 700 years before Christ was born, the birthplace of the Messiah in Micah 2 was prophesied about. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, though you're the smallest among the tribes of Judah, out of you will come one who will be the ruler of Israel. And who does this sound like? Whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That's Jesus. I've been to Bethlehem. Jesus was born 700 years later, after this prophecy, in this obscure little town outside of Jerusalem, exactly as prophesied. What about Psalm 22? Psalm 22 is this, is this prophetic, prophetic uh, document that talks about what, what, what was going on with Jesus on the cross. And we have the words that actually he quoted on the cross, which wouldn't be too hard to replicate him saying these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then you go on in the text, and it's a picture of someone who is being crucified on a cross. Listen to what uh, the scripture, Psalm Uh, 22 verses 15 and 16 uh, says, My strength are dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. We know that he was thirsty on the cross. We know that from the context. You lay me in the dust dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. And literally that would have happened on the outskirts of the town where they had these people that were being crucified waiting for death to come. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Written hundreds of years before the crucifixion. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. We see that description. And then listen to what it says. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Jesus really didn't have any control over what they were doing as he was nailed to a cross. As they divided up his garments as they cast lots for his clothing. The Bible is trustworthy. We go on and on, but for sake of time, let me conclude. If you want to go out from here this weekend and you can get on the internet, you can go to Barnes & Noble and you can find any number of authors or supposed scholars that will absolutely tell you whatever in the world you want to believe. 
If you want to believe the earth is flat, if you want to believe that the Sasquatch or the Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster is alive and well, if you want to believe that Elvis is living down in South America somewhere, whatever in the world you want to believe and you want to put your faith in that and you want somebody to tell you, yeah, that's right. And if you want somebody to tell you that God's word cannot be trusted and it's not trustworthy and don't put your faith there, then knock yourself out. But what I want to encourage you to do is that there are reasonable proofs that help to form a foundation, to form some bedrock, that which, at the end of the day, we've got to have faith in something. And I want to encourage you to put your faith, a reasonable faith, a reasonable trust in what God's Word has to say. Proofs will never persuade you to put your faith in the truth that's found within the pages of God's Word. It's going to take the Spirit of God confirming in your heart what you're hearing. And I just want to invite you to open up your heart to the Spirit of God confirming what we're talking about, confirming what God's Word says. A book can change your mind. Only the Bible can change your soul, can change your life for eternity as you allow its truth to reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to put our faith in the foundation, the root of your word. God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that in this miraculous way, and we could go on and on and on in the miraculous way that what we have in our hands this weekend, this, this beautiful, wonderful, miraculous book, that what, it, what we have is your word given to us, handed down to us in a miraculous way. God, we thank you for it. And we affirm its truth. We affirm its trustworthiness. But God, today we recognize that it is, at the end of the day, a matter of faith. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to open our hearts and our lives and our minds up by faith to what you are saying to us in your word about your Son, Jesus Christ, in our need to put our faith and our trust in Jesus. God, affirm that. Confirm what we believe about your word in us this weekend, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We've got a final song that we want to sing that just kind of affirms what we are 